and go to the book of Colossians. Now, you'll want to leave a marker here because I'm planning on preaching from the book of Colossians over the next several weeks. If it's been a while since you've studied this book, then you're in for a blessing. If you've never studied this book, then this is all going to be new. And so I pray that as we study the book of Colossians, we'll learn the great message of this tiny little epistle, and it is complete in Christ. But I'm going to preach to you today from Colossians 1, starting in the first eight verses, and I want to talk to you about the Christ-centered church. In one of his books, Robert Morgan relays the stirring testimony of Will Goddard, a pastor who grew up behind the Iron Curtain in East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. At the young age of 15, Will Goddard was summoned to appear in a closed-door meeting before authorities. His school principal, government officials, and agents from the Communist Party awaited him. The purpose of the meeting, Will said, was to pressure him into joining the Communist Party at a young age. If he did, the communist commissars promised Will a clear path of admission to college and other benefits. However, the consequences of rejecting the offer would mean that his future was in jeopardy. Well, what the men around the table did not know was that young Will Goddard had been reading the Bible. He actually had been memorizing the book of Colossians and was a committed Christ follower. And so this young man was in the tightest spot of his life. He did not want to deny Jesus, but yet he didn't want anything to do with the godless lifestyle of communism. Here's what he wrote in his journal. He said, To sit there as a youngster and defend yourself against five men who were trying to overwhelm and intimidate you is not easy. My heart was pounding out of my chest. So in the meeting, one of the officers asked young Will, Won't you join the Communist Party today? Will uttered a prayer in that moment, Lord, give me a word. That's when the verse that he had recently memorized popped into his mind. It was Colossians 2 and verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. When Will quoted that verse in defense, he was surprised at how disarming it was. Could you imagine taking the oxygen out of that little room as this 15-year-old boy just quoted Colossians 2.8? One of the communist agents shook his head and said, Young man, understand. What are you saying? Those men interrogating Will had age, rank, and power, and yet this simple retort by a 15-year-old student left them bewildered. They didn't know how to take the Bible being spoken to them. And so here's what happened. Will recalled, he said, the interview sputtered to a halt. <laughs> Amazingly, they asked no more questions, and they let me go. They made no more attempts to change my mind and that simple experience he said of relying on God's word showed me that the Bible is true and powerful he said from that day forward I knew I wanted to declare God's word now not only does that story I believe illustrate 
the real world impact of the message of Colossians, but I think it raises a bold challenge to you and I, and that is this. What would our lives look like if we internalize the message of this book of Colossians? If we took the simple theme of this book, which is the preeminence of Christ, what would our lives look like if Jesus was first in everything? 15-year-old Will Goddard wasn't afraid to put his faith on the witness stand. And as we think about that experience and this book, we ask ourselves that same question. What would my faith look like in a situation? You say, well, it'll never come here to these United States. But old friend, look at how much our world has changed and how much our country has changed in just one year. The, the day could come where we are sitting before a committee of people and they're asking us about our faith. Well, that's the major theme of this short letter of Colossians. The preeminence of Christ. And as we study this epistle, we're going to be challenged to put Jesus in the first place position in every aspect of our lives. And not only in our work life, in our marriage life, in our financial life, in our ministry, and in every aspect which God has called us to serve Him. I think maybe Adrian Rogers summed up the message of Colossians best, and it goes like this. Christ is either Lord of all, or He's not Lord at all. And that's really what this book boils down to. Now this morning, I want to give you an introductory message as we just get into the surface, under the surface here, these first eight verses. I want to talk to you a little bit about the background of the book of Colossians, why it was written, what's the purpose of it being in your New Testament. And in these first verses, though, I think that Paul focuses on a very important theme that we could learn from, and that is being a Christ-centered church. We're going to look at those principles here this morning. The first one we notice in our text is what I call the work of the Christ-centered church. The work of the Christ-centered church. Now let's read here verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, the city of Colossae was neighbored by two other small cities, Hierapolis and Laodicea, which we know a lot about because of the letter that Jesus wrote to them in Revelation chapter 3. But Colossae sat in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and Colossae really was an outskirt city of a bigger metropolis named Ephesus. We know a lot about Ephesus because Paul wrote a letter there to the Ephesian church. Of those three cities that sat on the outskirts of Ephesus, Colossae was the least significant. So there you can see on the map, Hierapolis, Laodicea, and Colossae, just down the road from Ephesus. In fact, from what historians can tell, there really wasn't much going on in the city of Colossae, this sleepy town, except for the fact that there was a church there. In fact, you might say that Colossae was the town that you drove through in order to get to the big city. Colossae was the least of all the churches that Paul addressed. 
And yet, here in this small, out-of-the-way town, the Lord had planted a gospel flag to a group of virtually unknown believers, and so significant was the impact of the gospel there that some 2,000 years later we're still reading and studying what God did there. Now, you might be surprised to learn that Paul never went to Colossae, never set foot in this city. However, he did spend three years preaching in Ephesus. We know that from the book of Acts, especially Acts 19, where it talks there about the impact of his ministry in Ephesus and it was so strong that the gospel was broadcast from Ephesus to some of these smaller towns. In fact, Acts 19.10 tells us this. This continued for two years, that is Paul's preaching, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, there were at least two people who came from Colossae and visited Paul there in Ephesus, and those two people were converted and went back to Colossae and took the gospel with them. One of them was a man named Epaphras, who we're going to read about in a little bit in verses 7 and 8. The other was a man named Philemon. And Paul actually wrote a letter to him later on in your New Testament concerning what he should do for his runaway slave Onesimus. But drop down to verse 7 and 8, and we'll see this man Epaphras who Paul won to the Lord from Colossae, and then he went back to Colossae and became a founder and a planter of the church there. Look at what it says in verse 7 and 8. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ to you on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Now let's stop there and talk about the work of the Christ-centered church now that we know the background. Here's a very good lesson for us to pick up on. God doesn't always need a big-time preacher to fulfill His ministry. God doesn't need a big name like the Apostle Paul. God doesn't need an anointed singer. God doesn't need a lot of the things that we think churches need today in order to have an impact in their community. All He needs is somebody who will make themselves available and be able to be used by God in a powerful way. God doesn't need professionals, quote-unquote, to do the significant ministry. God isn't looking at ability. He's looking at availability. And I'm case number one of that. Not ability, but availability. And so, look at this man, Epaphras. He got saved. He heard the gospel. It transformed him. He said, I've got to take this back to my hometown of Colossae. And Paul sent him on his way. You see, Epaphras didn't wait around on Paul to come to Colossae to start the church. Instead, he went back and simply did what saved people do, and that is bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ, serve Him, and share what He's done in their life. You don't have to have a title. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have uh, all these things that we think you need in order to have church. You just have to be changed by Jesus Christ, filled by His Spirit, empowered to do a ministry. And friend, that's the work of the Christ-centered church. Thank God for humble saints like Epaphras who do whatever it takes to continue the work of the local church. And praise God, I can tell you, we've got some Epaphras-type folks with us week in and week out. They volunteer to teach. 
They serve when they're asked to. Sometimes they even volunteer. And they don't even have to be asked. They just see a need and they meet it. They clean the bathrooms. They serve in the kitchen. They volunteer. They give week in and week out. They pray. They visit the sick. Friend, let me tell you, if it's going to get done here at Liberty Baptist, it's going to be because of faithful people who take up the gospel mantle who roll up their sleeves and say I don't have to wait on the pastor I can have my own ministry I can do the work of the Christ-centered church where God has planted me you can do it look at what Epaphras did and how God used this man to start a church not many people today know the name of George Smith he was a British missionary who went to Africa in the 1800s. When he got there, he faced incredible opposition. Sickness and starvation and persecution drove him back to England just a couple of years after he had set foot there in Africa. When he left, he could only count one convert. He said, my ministry is another failure of resources. And he said, I only want one person to Jesus Christ. It was a little widow lady. Well, it wasn't long after returning home that George Smith suddenly died of a stroke. He never got to go back to Africa. When they found his body, they said that they found him in a kneeling position. They think that he died in prayer. But by most standards, if you look at what was going on in George Smith's life and his ministry, you would say, well, yeah, that was a failure. But that's not the end of the story. Several years later, a group of missionary explorers went back to Africa where Smith was stationed. They found a little hut where he was living. They found a copy of his Bible that he had left there. And the men who were sent on that mission tracked down the little widow lady whom he had won to Jesus Christ. And they were shocked to discover that several small villages in the vicinity had converted to Jesus because of that little woman's simple testimony. In fact, a hundred years after the death of Mr. Smith, the Moravian Missionary Alliance did a survey and found 13,000 living converts who had sprung from the ministry of a little widow lady who took the gospel to village to village and because of the faithfulness of one saint, a man named George Smith, who went there and won one person to Jesus and it started a domino effect. Friend, that's the work of the Christ-centered church. If God can use a little widow in Africa, if God can use an Epaphras in Colossae, then friend, what can He do with you and me here in Candler, North Carolina? The Christ-centered church, they look at themselves and they say, well, we're not the biggest church on the block. Or we don't have the best budget. We don't have all the talent. We don't have all the lights and the dazzling performance that somebody else can do. But that's okay because I've got the Word of God. I've got the Spirit of God. And if it was good enough in the first century, it's good enough in 2021. Hey, we may not have all the resources. We may not have all the bells and whistles that somebody else else does but I like it better that way I'll take being an underdog because when God moves and God does a work in your vicinity you know it had to come from him it didn't come from me or you or our intelligence and Jesus Christ gets the glory that's the work of the Christ 
Christ-centered church. Are you glad you came to, came to church yet? Amen. The work of the Christ-centered church. And then I want to talk to you also this morning about the worldview of the Christ-centered church. Now, one of the major reasons why Paul could not go to Colossae to check on the ministry there was because at the time that he wrote this letter, he was in prison. That's right, he was chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. They chained shifts, they bring a new guard in, he would be chained to Paul. Boy, how'd you like to be chained to Brother Paul? Don't you think they got a gospel message, three points, maybe some sub-points thrown in there? Hey, come on back tomorrow, we'll finish that later, I'm sure he said. But Paul never went to Colossae. And the only way that Paul got news of what was happening in Colossae was because Epaphras visited him or wrote him and told him what was going on, all the problems that they were facing in the Colossian church. By the way, if you think uh, our church has problems and our church is messed up, or you think the church that you came from uh, had some problems, every New Testament church was like that, praise God. Uh, If the church was perfect, we wouldn't have much of a New Testament because all the letters that Paul wrote to the churches were addressing various problems that were cropping up in their situation. But the major issue going on in Colossae was this. The Christian worldview was under attack. False teachers had crept in And they had begun teaching false doctrines and they created all manner of confusion among the people. That's what verse 8 in chapter 2 is all about. Look at what that verse says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Paul is talking about the Christian worldview. The way in which you see the world. How you think about economics and the government how you view culture, what you think about art and beauty. Everything that you receive through the world or think about the world is filtered through the gospel lens. He's talking about the worldview. Don't be taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition and the elemental spirits of the world not according to Christ. In other words, in today's parlance, Paul is saying to them, don't believe the fake news. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Not everything that you are hearing from these teachers is correct. Now, according to this worldview, there were three isms or false doctrines that had infiltrated the church in Colossae. I just want to touch on the three of them. The first ism was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was a mishmash of Greek philosophy and Christianity. It said that in order to be saved, you had to have Jesus plus special knowledge. In fact, that word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And one of their beliefs was that the physical universe was inherently evil. And since the Gnostics believed that matter was evil, they concluded that Jesus could not have been fully human because God would never attach Himself to an evil material body. Now, you can see how that would be a problem, don't you? Because if Jesus wasn't fully human, then we don't have an all-sufficient Savior. 
He's 100% man. He's 100% God. When he stretched himself out on Calvary, he made a bridge between heaven and earth, man and God. If he wasn't fully God, then he's a bridge broken at the furthest end. If he's not fully man, then he's a bridge broken at the nearest end. And Paul addressed this error. Look at what he said in chapter 2 and verse 9. He's dealing with Gnosticism there. He says, for in him, that's Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. How many of you believe today that Jesus Christ was God in a body walking around? Amen? That's the first ism that he dealt with, Gnosticism. The second ism was legalism. Legalism is the belief that you have to have Jesus plus good works in order to be saved. And the belief there in Colossae was that these Gentile Christians, in order to be saved, not only did they have to believe in Christ, but they had to practice the Old Testament law. They had to become Jews in a sense. That meant keeping the Sabbath. That meant dietary restrictions. That meant circumcision and a whole lot of other things. But Paul spoke against this false teaching in chapter 2, verse 16. Look at what he said there. He said, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, he's saying, Look, you don't have to fulfill the Old Testament law because Jesus did that for you. I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, he said. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed, and it all points to one person, the prophecy fulfilling, miracle working, dying, raising, and resurrecting Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Religion says do, but Christianity says done. Religion says behave, but Jesus says believe. Religion says just try, keep trying, and trying to be a good person. But Jesus says, no, just trust. Friend, that's the gospel. Jesus and Jesus alone. Gnosticism and legalism. And there was a thirdism corrupting the worldview there in Colossae. It was mysticism. This was the idea that you had to have Jesus plus other gods in order to be saved. Brother, if you get on YouTube and you listen to some of the big name preachers, it falls into this category of mysticism. They come up with new ideas and new philosophies. And we quote unquote, we've got new truth and new revelation. You hear that from time to time, friend? If it's not in the cover of these 66 books, it's not the Word of God. But the idea in the first century in Colossae was, hey, you had to have Jesus, but you also ought to worship some of these Greek gods and these angels. Can't forget the angels. We've got to worship them too. And don't forget your spiritual mediums out there. They're good too. Paul cleared this up. He addressed this problem in verse 18 of chapter 2. Look at what he said. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Going in detail about visions. We've got plenty of that today. Puffed up without reason by sensuous mind. So Paul corrected the Colossians here by saying, Look. 
Jesus is Lord, not the angels, not your astrologer, not what your horoscope says, not what the latest fad or the greatest oratorical teacher is saying. It's Jesus only. In Him, you're complete. So, as you can see here as we read through this, this is why Colossians is so contemporary to 21st century because we are still seeing the same lies here in the 21st century. Satan hasn't taken a day off, has he? He's still working 365, 24-7. It's the same lies. It's just repackaged and glossied up in a different way. We've got the same isms that Colossae was battling with and then some. And the way that the church stays Christ-centered. You know how you keep the church stable? How to keep the church moving forward? How to keep the church viable and relevant? Some say, well, you need to change the music. Uh, You need to throw out the old furniture and bring in the new. You need to do all these external things. And if you do that, get you a young pastor who'll get up in some skinny jeans and preach a, a nice fluffy message to you. They'll say, if you do these things, you'll keep the church contemporary. Well, friend, let me tell you something. All a man has to do is stand on the Word of God. You want to keep the church on center. You want to keep the church uh, on a strong foundation. No man shall build on any other foundation except the one that has already been laid in Christ Jesus. Uh, Just stick uh, with the good book. Just stick with the 66 books from Genesis to Revelation. Preach it verse by verse unapologetically. Uh, Talk about the hard things. Preach on the glory of Christ and the coming of Christ. And dig deep and send your roots down deep into the Word of God. And let the Word of God shape your worldview and shape your thinking. Friend, I don't need a gimmick. I don't need a trick to try and get you interested. I I don't need to change things around. And there's nothing wrong with doing some of these changes. But I'm not hitching everything I've got to external things that man can do all I need to do is be filled with the Spirit of God prayed up and preaching on the Word of God and I'll think that that will be good enough for me you see friend the greatest impact a pastor can have on the church is to faithfully week in and week out preach the Word of of God because in doing that it shapes the Christian mind and you get a Christian worldview so that everything then begins to be filtered through the scriptures like a set of glasses that you have on where you begin to see the world through the eyes of Matthew Mark Luke and John through the letters of Paul you don't lose your hope because you've read the book of Revelation and you know how things are going to end for the child of God You see what I'm saying? The Christian world view is so important. The way you keep your mind straight and your life on track is to develop that biblical world view. Speaking of world views, boy, we got our world view shook last year, didn't we? When things got turned upside down, when the whole world went crazy in 2020, did anything make sense last year? Somebody give me a witness in the house of God. Did anything the politicians said 
or our governor said, or the doctors said, or the so-called experts told us, did any of it make any sense to you? Please tell me I'm not the only crazy person in here. Speaking of worldview, listen to this. Psychologists and mental health experts recently reported that because of COVID and the lockdowns and the isolation, that 2020, they said, was the worst year in decades for depression, anxiety, suicide, and mental problems. You believe that? Look at the headline. Only those attending church report improved mental health in 2020, study says. <laughs> but the one group of society that exhibited positive mental health stability through the year, through last year, was people who attended church in person or had a steady diet of tuning in online and getting their soul fed through the preaching and the singing. Friend, you want a worldview change? You want to help yourself more than anything? Turn the TV off. Get off your phone. Get off Facebook and get in the book and start developing a Christian worldview and start thinking about things the way that God thinks about them. Don't base your opinion off of what a politician says or a celebrity says. Go with a thus says the Lord. Friend, I need the church. Church is essential. I don't care what the politicians say, what the governor says. I need to be in the house of God. I need to be preaching the Word of God. Imagine what it would have been like last year without the preaching, without the singing. Friend, the crazier that this world gets, I'm convinced the only thing that makes sense is the Word of God. Charles Swindoll, he, he tells this great story in one of his books about, about a bank teller. A bank teller who noticed a few years ago they kept seeing counterfeit bills come across the table. And they said, what are we going to do about this? The tellers would say, well, here's today's count. And they'd start examining it and they'd realize that there were all these counterfeit bills that were being passed through their bank. So the bank teller proposed a solution. And the bank manager got his tellers to spend two weeks. He sent them off on this retreat and they studied for two weeks the real $20 bill, $100 bill, $50 bill and so on. All the bills that were being counterfeited. They spent weeks just studying the real thing. In other words, they didn't spend time looking at all of the counterfeits. They just looked at the real McCoy. And he said when they came back from that, they were so intimately aware of the real thing that they had no trouble spotting a phony. Friend, I don't have time to deal with every single ism crazy idea or false doctrine that's being preached out from pulpits or on YouTube or is floating around out there in the world. I don't have time to put out all those fires. But I'll tell you this, if I get my nose in that book and I commit myself to renew my mind daily and I stay in His Word, I will be able to spot a phony because I know the real thing. Once you are Christ-centered, you'll know black from white and every other shade of gray in between. That's the worldview of the Christ-centered church. That's the work of the Christ-centered church. 
And I finish today. Number three, I want you to see this. The witness of the Christ-centered church. Hang with me for just a few more moments. The witness of the Christ-centered church. Now in the remaining verses of this introduction, Paul gives a, a prayer of praise to God. And in this brief passage right here, he gives several characteristics of what he knew about the believers in Colossae. And as you read through this, think of this as a checklist. Use it as an inventory in your life. Read through this checklist and say, do I have these qualities in my spirit? Read through these qualities and say, do I see this happening at Liberty Baptist Church? So, Paul focuses here on the witness of the Christ-centered church. As they went out in the world, what things did they exhibit? Well, first, notice this, they had saving faith. They had saving faith. Verse 3, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Verse 4, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. You know everybody has faith. Even the atheists exercise amounts of faith in their daily life. Why? We get on a plane, don't we? We place faith in an airline pilot who we've never seen, don't know, and haven't vetted his credentials. We get inside a speeding tube with him and have faith that he'll get us from one end of the country to the other. We put faith in doctors. To a fault almost. You know, doctors can be wrong too. Doctors don't always give the right diagnosis. They don't always know everything there is to know about a virus or whatever's going on in the world. But we put a lot of trust in man, don't we? And friend, here's what I'm saying. If you can put trust in a pilot, if you can put trust in a doctor or in somebody else, surely we can put faith and trust in a Jesus Christ who's died and rose again. That's saving faith. A few years ago in 2018, the whole world watched in anticipation as 12 boys from the Thailand soccer team and their coach were rescued by expert divers after they were trapped for two weeks in a flooded cave in northern Thailand. You remember this story? It was all over the news. This coach and their boys, they had went cave exploring and while they were in that cave exploring, a, a flood came and they were trapped inside this cave. The whole world was kind of enraptured by this rescue attempt to get these boys out of this cave. Listen to what happened. Divers guided each boy along a 2.5 mile track in the dark, twisting cave. Most of the boys could not swim. And each one was fitted with a diving suit, boots, gloves, and helmet, and a full diving mask. Most of the boys, after two weeks of not eating, were too weak to swim. They were each tethered to a diver, breathing from an oxygen tank, and they were swam out of the cave to safety. After the ordeal was over and those boys were rescued, the Prime Minister of Thailand gave the reason why he felt that that rescue operation was successful. You know what he said? He said the operation was a success because of one word, faith. The boys had total trust in our divers. You think about that. 
That is saving faith. And friend, you have to have saving faith in order to see heaven and to know Jesus Christ. We have to cling to Jesus, not only for our salvation, but for our guidance through this dark and twisted cave called life. I'm thankful that I've got a good shepherd, that he's been there before, that he knows the depth of the valley, that he knows and can see through the darkness, and he's charted a course, and he says, take hold of my hand. I'll give you what you need to get out and see you on the other side. That's faith, F-A-I-T-H, forsaking all I trust him. And friend, if he brought you through 2020, he'll bring you through 2021, amen? Like the old gospel hymn tells us, nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Saving faith. Do you have it today? They also had supernatural love. Look what it said in verse 4. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. That's a hard verse. Listen to that one little word. All. It's hard to love everybody in church, isn't it? <laughs> Somebody say amen. That little word all, it's hard. Bible scholar John Phillips commented on this verse. Look at what he said. He said, quote, The church is God's laboratory of love, where we learn how to love people like Christ loves us. And often those we are called to love are at times unlovable. And yes, sometimes that's even me. Love for all the saints includes love for old brother backbiter and for quarrelsome sister axe grinder and for gossiping deacon tongue swagger and for weak sister mud wallower. <laughs> As the old piece of poetry says, to dwell above with saints above, that will indeed be glory, but to dwell below with saints we know, that's another story. Called to love everybody. When D.L. Moody was in his heyday and he was preaching there at Chicago, the story goes that an old hobo was walking by the church one day. And it was a cold, snowy morning. The hobo was meandering his way down to the local tavern. And as he made his way past Moody's church, they had a big banner across the front entrance of the church. You know what it said? The banner said, God is love. The hobo saw that. His heart was warm. He thought, maybe I'll go in and, and check that out. The story goes that as Moody ascended to the pulpit, he started preaching on John 3, 16, For God so loved the world. And the little hobo who was sitting in the back of the church started weeping like a baby. I mean, just the thought of God loving him, a miserable drunk sinner, just absolutely wrecked his world and crushed his heart. Everybody was let out of the church. That little hobo stayed there in the back. He's just sobbing, just crying like a baby. The story goes that Mr. Moody walked up to him and he said, Sir, what brings you here today? And the drunkard looked up at him and he said, It was that sign on the outside of the church. It said, God is love. And I came inside to see if it was so. Friend, what a challenge to you and I. Let the community know that Liberty Baptist Church is a place 
where we love sinners, where we don't judge people because of their past. We don't kick them when they've fallen down. Let it be known in this community that the doors are open. You let the druggies in. You let the drunks in. You let the people with a past in. Because this is the place where they're going to hear about the love of a Savior who died in their place. You better love the sinner, Liberty Baptist Church. Because if there's one way to keep it a Christ-centered church, Christ loved the sinners. Not the people who have it all together. Not the people who are nice and neat and clean and whose lives are in order. Hey, let's love the community to Jesus Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. They don't care how much we know until they know how much we care. They had a supernatural love. And then look at this. They had a sustaining hope. Verse 5. A sustaining hope. The Bible says this. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the world of truth and of the gospel. G.K. Chesterton said the one thing that gives radiance to every everything in the Christian life is the hope that there is something better just around the corner. And there is, isn't it? We're just one trumpet blow away from the rapture. We're just one breath, one heartbeat away from heaven. And the hope of heaven and the joy of seeing Jesus face to face is what gets me up out of bed in the morning. It's the hope of heaven that uh, gives me the motivation to preach to you today. It's the hope of heaven that keeps me on the straight and narrow path. It's the reason we share the gospel. It's the reason we come to worship. It's the reason we keep our head up when things aren't going right and there's sickness and there's suffering and there's persecution because we have the hope that This isn't the end of the story. That there's a sovereign God in heaven. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. And when we get there and we see Him face to face, we'll raise up a song and say, It was worth it after all. Without the gospel, our lives are a hopeless end. But with the gospel, our lives are an endless hope. There's coming a day when no heartaches shall come. No more clouds in the sky. No more tears to dim the eye. All is peace forevermore on that happy golden shore. What a day, glorious day that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see and I look upon His face, the one who saved me by His grace. When He takes me by the hand and leads me through the promised land. What a day! Glorious day that will be. Sometimes God blesses me with the thought of that so much I can't even stand myself. But God just keeps blessing. Amen. The sustaining hope. Do you have that in your heart today? Oh friend, the world's looking for it. The world is starving for somebody who can give them love and hope. And Jesus in you can do it. They had sustaining hope. Then lastly, look at this. They had stunning growth. They had stunning growth. Verse 6, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. 
It is bearing fruit and increasing. He's talking about the gospel. As it does also among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul rejoiced. He couldn't go to Colossae. He was in prison. All he had was second-hand reports from Epaphras. Epaphras came back and said, Man, that church is busting. And people are getting saved over there. The gospel is making inroads. Yeah, there's the problems. There's false teaching. But Paul, let me tell you about the service we had last week. Friend, aren't you glad for the growth of the gospel? Aren't you glad for the promise that God's Word says it'll go out and it won't return void? Don't you praise God that last year you had a place to come to to hear the preaching? Aren't you, aren't you glad that last year we got to baptize five? Aren't you glad that on the last service that we had in 2020 we had a young boy get saved? There's growth happening. There's exciting things going on in the world. You won't find it on Fox News or, or social media, but it's happening where God is moving. Let me tell you, God is still moving in the little churches. God is still moving in the out-of-the-way places. God is moving in the little piece of real estate called the church that the world drives by week in and week out. They don't give scant thought to it. The news only wants to report on the church as a super spreader when they get cases of COVID. But I'm telling you, there are good things happening in God's house. And if we stay centered as the Christ-centered church, I'm telling you, folks will get saved. The gospel will prosper. If he did it in Colossae, he can do it in Candler. It's the same Word of God, the same Spirit of God. It's the same gospel. I'm going to finish with this. Before Thanksgiving, me and my family, we got to take a trip over to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. I don't even like going to Gatlinburg. I can't stand the traffic. <laughs> Don't I sound like a Grinch? But we went over there. We had a great time. We ate some good food. We played. We took the kids to Obergatlinburg. You ever been to Obergatlinburg? We took them ice skating. They had some rides over there the kids wanted to ride. One of the biggest rides that they've got there is a, it's like a little trolley that you ride up to the top of the mountain and then you get in this little trolley track and you ride down. And you've got a handbrake that can kind of control the, the speed of the, the trolley. Daniel 7, Abigail's 4. Daniel was gung-ho. I don't know, if did you see the picture the day after Christmas, him barefoot in the mountain creek? I mean, he was ready to go. He was ready to ride. Show that picture there, Preston. Abigail rode with me. We rode the chairlift up to the top of the mountain. She was all gung-ho about it because Daniel was wanting to do it. Anything Daniel does, she follows. So sister says, Daddy, I want to ride with you. Well, we get up there to the top of the mountain. And she looks at that slide, how far down it's going. Other people have gone on before us. So they're screaming and hollering and having a big time. She starts to get a little scared. Who you want to ride with? The attendant asked. You want to ride with your mom or you want to ride with your dad? She's still a daddy's girl, by the way. 
She says, Daddy, I'm going to marry you one day. And I'll have to fight the, the, the boys when they come for her one day. She said, Daddy, she said, Daddy, I, I want to ride with you. She said, as long as I can hold on to you. She said, I'll be okay. You dads know what I'm talking about. You melt like butter, don't you? We got in that little trolley. She grabbed around me. She about cut the circulation off. I let that handbrake go and whoosh, we went down the mountain. Ah, ah, she screamed and cried the whole way down. We got to the bottom, boiled that thing into park. She got out. She jumped up and down and she said, Daddy, I was scared. She said, I want to ride it again, but I'm going to hold on to you. You see where I'm going with that? Friend, this roller coaster ride of life is bumpy and it's fast. And a lot of times it gets out of the control. And we think, who's got the hand on the wheel? Somebody better slow this thing down. But I'm thankful today that I got somebody to hold on to. And he holds on to me. His name is Jesus. Uh, he's the good shepherd. Uh, he is the pillar and the cornerstone of the church. And no matter how out of control the ride gets, I can hold on to him. He is mine and I am his. And he'll get me there to the other side amen friend do you know him today are you holding on for dear life he's a good God he's a faithful savior you hold on to him he'll not let you go maybe you don't know him that way I pray that if you don't that today you do business with the Lord